Hey, tennis fans, you are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We're also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre, and we are now through one week of play at the All England Club. Some early upsets, some favorites delivering, and we're just getting ready for Manic Monday. And Mike, it is a two-guest week, and uh, we're happy to be joined right now to recap all the action Um we're joined by tennis correspondent from PA, Eleanor Crooks. Uh, Eleanor, thanks so much uh, for joining us on Matchpoint Canada here. No problem at all. Happy to be on. And then later on, we'll be welcoming Zach Thomas, the foot doctor, to talk about grass court shoes and why we're seeing so many slips at the All England Club through the first week of action. But uh, yeah, as you mentioned, Eleanor, welcome to the podcast. You're another in a long line of uh, British tennis journalists that we're happy to welcome on the show. Oh, no, I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, we're uh, we're thrilled to talk to you. And uh, as I said, Manic Monday is set to arrive and we are through one week of play. And we wanted to start on the men's field because uh, it feels like the usual suspects are getting it done. Of course, Novak Djokovic comfortably through to the round of 16. Uh, in terms of storylines, though, what has maybe been the biggest surprise to you? Obviously, Stefano Tsitsipas went out early, but uh, there are a few other names there that uh, we're, we're not used to seeing up playing in the second week of Wimbledon. No, absolutely. Um, I think maybe if you're going to pick a name, Ilya Ivashka, um, he wasn't somebody that I would have thought would be in the second week of Wimbledon. I know he has a he has had a good year on kind of a, a, the challenger level. So, uh, but yeah, still to see him come through and, and get to the second week, that's he's probably the name that I definitely wouldn't have picked to come through. Um, he's the Karatsev as... of, uh, of Wimbledon, I guess, the challenger that uh, we should have yeah. paid more attention to prior to, right? Yeah. Um, and then um, Sebastian Corder for me is probably the intre- the most interesting one in terms of somebody you can't ne- really say it's a surprise, I don't think, given how well he's been playing in his game at somebody who, who should play well on grass. But still, you know, he hasn't got the experience on grass. So I, I still think what he's done is is super impressive for, for 20 years old, obviously. Um, from a British perspective, um, I watched his match against Dan Evans uh, with a different hat on, but I thought he was terrific. Um, he, you know, first time on centre court, he looked completely comfortable, like he'd been there all his life. And I thought he, he played a really, really good match. And with the game he's got, you know, the weapons he's got, the serve, the attitude, I think, um, I think there's no reason he couldn't go further. Yeah, yeah, and a, a compelling matchup, I think, ahead with Russia and uh, Karen Hatchinov. Um, I, I will sh- shift over to Novak for a moment because mm-hmm. it was interesting to see him, you know, drop the very first set of his tournament. And uh, since then, I, w- I would probably say it's, it's basically been cruise control. And uh, I said this a week ago, but I'm hard pressed to find somebody who can beat Novak Djokovic at this tournament. I see maybe Andre Rublev lurking in the quarterfinals, Tsitsipas is now out as we know uh what have you made of his form through one week of play and do you see anybody stopping him yeah um as you said the, f- the first that he lost was to Britain's Jack Draper who is certainly somebody that we've been excited about for a while so it was really good to see him step out on center court and and show what he's made of and really t- take that opportunity to sort of introduce himself to, to the public. But um, yeah, after Novak, Novak obviously hadn't played a, a match on grass for two years. So I think maybe it wasn't too surprising that he was slightly slow to start with. And obviously he was trying to find his feet, he kept falling over. So 
Um, I think, yeah, won't sort of count that too much in, in terms of anything to be at all concerned about. Didn't think he played his best against Dennis Kudler, but the fact is he, he still got through in straight sets. And yeah, as you say, he's, he's such a big favourite. I mean, yeah, who, who could stop him? I don't know. It's, it's kind of been the case at Slums for a while now, isn't it? You just sort of think who, who could stop him? Um, on his side, I have to say the two that stand out for me are probably... Corder or Denis Shapovalov, I thought he played really, really well against Andy Murray. And he's got, you know, that very aggressive game. He goes for it. And if he's on, then he can trouble absolutely anyone, including Djokovic. Um, yeah, potentially in the final. I mean, I think Federer's, he's played well. Do I think he can beat Djokovic? No. Um, so, yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? I mean... Yeah, it's Novak against the field, isn't it? And and you have to pick Novak for me. I, I wonder if a vintage Roger Federer could even uh, give Novak yeah. trouble the way he's playing right now. But let's talk about Roger for a moment. Um, at the start of the tournament, I was asking him about his plans beyond Wimbledon and specifically about the Olympics. And uh, he made it sound that it was more going to be performance-based. How did he feel, him and his team, about how he played here at Wimbledon before deciding what to do next? Um, well, he's into the second week and, uh, you know, in that first round match against Manorino, that didn't look like it was going to be a given through the first three sets until things corrected. And then unfortunately, uh, the injury withdrawal, what are you seeing from Federer, um, so far this week that either makes you more optimistic of him potentially reaching the finals or, or perhaps less optimistic? Yeah, he was, he was extremely ropey, wasn't he? Against Manorino, um, made a lot of errors, didn't look comfortable at all, but he's played so few matches. So we, we sort of expect Roger Federer to, to be God, don't we? And, and just kind of rock up and, and play like he's always played. Um, but, you know, even Roger Federer, I think, needs, needs a few matches coming in. And, and of course, we can't forget he turns 40 next month. So, I mean, what he's doing is, is incredible, really. Um, but no, I have to say that the last two matches, I think, against, against Gasquet and against Cam Norrie, Yesterday, uh, I think generally he's played pretty well. Um, he's 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 got the the aggressive game that obviously we we associate with with Roger Federer. I think against Manorino, he wasn't quite confident. He wasn't really going for it. Um, whereas Gasquet definitely, he's got such a good record against Gasquet, hasn't he? And and the the style that Gasquet plays, I think that helped Roger sort of get back into a rhythm. And he was looking confident on his forehand again because that's that's what can go, isn't it? That's if he's sort of not confident, then his his forehand is the thing that's breaking down at the moment. So I felt like his forehand really came back against Gasquet and then against Cam. He, yeah, he played well. He played quickly, sort of suffocated Cam a little bit, really. Um, just had that wobble at the end of the third set. And I think that's maybe what I would pick out is that when you haven't played so many matches, you're just not match tight, are you? So you can look in control and then you can suddenly have a wobble out of nowhere and, and lose a set. And obviously against Cameron Norrie, he, he got away with that and he won in four relatively comfortably. But against more dangerous players, he might not do that. So he'll be happy, I think. He's ha happy to get through to the second week. That was his first target. Um, and the more he plays on grass, the more he plays at Wimbledon, I think the, the more dangerous he'll get, the more confident he'll get. Yeah, well said, well said. Um, two other players who are definitely showing confidence that we want to talk to you about, being that we're based here in Canada, are Felix Oshialiasim and Denis Shapovalov, who are both into the fourth round at, at Wimbledon for the first time. Um, I mean, Felix has already shown us at the age of 20, making eight ATP finals of the immense talent he brings to the table, even though he hasn't, you know, converted on one of them yet. Shapovalov has had deep runs at several Masters 1000s. 
How do you compare? Uh, it's always interesting for us to hear journalists from other countries give us their take. How do you compare them to other emerging talents on the ATP? And, and do you get the sense that either one of them could be primed for uh, a late second week run here potentially? Yeah, no, I mean, I've, I've enjoyed watching them break through and, uh, and you know, post some really good results. They're very different, aren't they? Sort of different Absolutely. characters and very different game styles. It's really good. It's good to see Felix into the second week, I think. It's because uh, it has been a, a bit of a tough time, hasn't it? Even though I think we forget how young he is, you know. Absolutely. I, I, I realised um, recently he's, he's younger than Sebastian Corder, but, you know, we think of Sebastian Corder as having just suddenly emerged, whereas Felix obviously has been around for kind of two or three years, but he's still only 20. So it's no surprise, really, that it's taken him maybe a little bit of time to to really sort of find his level at, at this level and, and to, to find some consistency, which I think maybe is, is what he's needed. But um, no, it's great to see him, him coming through when uh, it'd be a really good match, I think, against against Verev. Um, that's, uh, that's a big one for him, isn't it? Because uh, it's a big, it's an opportunity, but at the same time, he's not really expected to win that. So it will be a good opportunity, maybe not, not to, to put too much pressure on himself, to try and play freely. And to see if he can hurt Zverev, but it was a shame that he didn't get to finish the match against against Kyrgios because I think that um, that was one everyone was looking forward to. And we were Chapamala so excited came. about that uh, one. Yeah, and I, you I know, bet. like, can we have an epic five setter? No, it's done after two. Oh. <laughs> I know. Um, yeah. So Shep, no, but Shapovalov, I, yeah, I was so impressed with him against Andy. I mean, I know that obviously Andy didn't play as well as Andy can, but but still, you know, the shots he produced. The, the confidence he has. I mean, that backhand is just, I, I drool over that backhand, I have to say. It's, uh, it's such a spectacular shot, but he served so well. Uh, so, he, you know, and he has got a game that I think should should be good on grass. I know, again, he's, he's not super experienced, but obviously he's a Wimbledon junior champion. So he knows he can play on the surface. And I, I feel like this is a really big chance for him, actually. And I could, I could, I could see him going further, definitely. Yeah, yeah, I certainly, you know, after that win over Andy Murray, I asked him in press, I was like, was that, you know, the best match you've played at Wimbledon? And he said, not only was it the best match I've played at Wimbledon, it's maybe the one of the best matches I've ever played at a Grand Slam. And um, you get the sense, even though he is also so young, that he is a big match player. He seemed to yeah. kind of relish being on that center court so much. I understand, you know, maybe there were some nervy moments in that first set, but but after he won that first set, just his ability to to completely take over and sort of dictate from the back of the baseline was so impressive. Um, I wanted to ask you about Andy Murray because um, mm-hmm. it was it was a somewhat somber press conference afterwards. I, I mean, we've we've had worse, obviously, but he was pretty candid, sort of acknowledging. I guess the challenge in his head saying, how hard do I push to continue on? You know, I spent so much time rehabbing, training, working hard, and then, and then feeling like I'm not quite competitive against the, you know, the top players in the world like Dennis. So he was sort of weighing, is it worth it? The amount of hours he's putting into this. Um, Do you believe he'll like continue on? I know he plans to play the Tokyo Olympics, but uh how much harder do you, do you see him pushing, I guess, through 2021? Do, do we expect him to be kind of a singles regular for the next sort of year or two? Um, no, I don't think so. I, for me, I think it's all to do with his body. And, you know, what he was saying is he just hasn't been able to put the time in on the practice court. He hasn't been able to practice every day. He hasn't been able to, to do the things he wants to do. Um, so therefore, 
he's he's going out knowing that there's no way he's going to find his best game because he just hasn't been able to to invest in that um and I think maybe that's where it's different to somebody like a, a Federer who yes of course he's a bit scratchy but I feel like he goes out there still thinking that I can play my best tennis maybe not all the time but I can whereas Andy Murray at the moment he knows that he can't play his best tennis so it's for me, it's all about can he get his body into a position where he can train properly, he can do the practicing that he wants to. Um, and then he will at least go into the matches feeling like he's put himself in the best position. Um, I fear, though, that he won't be able to do that because over the last four years, he just hasn't been able to. And, and every time he's sort of tried to push and he's maybe had a block of a few weeks where he's he's been OK, then he's picked up another another injury and they all seem to be related to the, the hip area, I mean, it's not surprising, is it? You know, the guy's trying to play with a metal hip. It's mm. uh, it's not something that uh, that anyone's done before in singles. But I do just feel sadly that I think his body just just can't can't hold up to what he's he's asking of it. I mean, I really really hope I'm wrong, and I hope he gets at least you know maybe six months or so where he gets to to do all the training and to go out and to play some matches and to really give it everything. Um, so yeah, we'll see. I mean, I, I so hope we see him back at Wimbledon because those first two matches were were fantastic and the atmosphere and you know the the, the investment that he has in his tennis and in winning and it, it, there's nobody for us anyway. There's there's nobody like him. So yes, I would you know I would love to see him back, but I think for him it's all about can his body be healthy. It's tough watching such a great champion unable to you know even get close at the moment to their former self and. And, and not, not necessarily that he's wanting that or expecting that, but even just to be, you know, more competitive than his body's allowing him. I mean, everybody wants that Pete Sampras moment, I guess, where they go out and, and win that favorite tournament or one of their favorite tournaments and, and then go out as a champion. But, you know, it's just not realistic, I guess, for most players, unfortunately. No, and uh, yeah, especially given his, you know, given his injury issues, I think it's, it's not like a knee where maybe you, you go and have an operation and, and then if you rehab it enough, eventually hopefully it'll be okay it's obviously a very it's a very complicated area of the body and and even though he's sort of solved one problem it, it seems like it's led to other problems so uh, yeah as I say we will just have to wait and see I mean I think I think that the will is is still there as as long as as I say as as long as his body holds out we should uh, transition over to the women's side of course and uh women's draw pretty pretty wide open to begin with it's not like there's a Djokovic there that everyone is expecting to uh, hoist the trophy at the end of the two weeks we've had early departures from Serena Williams Garbina Muguruza and Petra Kvitova as well who many would have held as potential um, front runners do you think we're going to end up with a surprising group of semi-finalists like we did a few weeks ago in Paris or or should this be a little bit more true to form with what we have left in the draw I think Maybe something in between. I, I would I would be surprised if it was quite quite as unpredictable as what happened in, in Paris. You know, even with the sort of unpredictable women's draws we've had, I think that was really extreme in, in terms of the four players who came through. I mean, not that obviously they're not very good players and, and also people who had been informed, but just in terms of the names that people who aren't tennis obsessives are familiar with, it was, yeah, it was... Uh, it was very, very unexpected. Um, so yeah, I think I think that we'll probably maybe have one, one or two who who 
are sort of complete surprises in, in terms of the, the wider picture. Um, and there may be a couple who are less surprising. I think that might be my assessment if that's not sitting on the fence too much. Yeah, and uh, you know, despite all these upsets, we we still have to remind ourselves the first and second seeds are, are still in this tournament. Mm-hmm. In fact, Ash Barty is at the top half of the draw, Arena Sabalenka on that bottom half of the draw. And it, it's unusual, I, I feel like, how much we're maybe not talking about Ash, Ash Barty. She's the world number one. She's probably, not probably, I, I think definitively played the best tennis of anybody on a consistent base on a consistent basis through 2021 she's a, a worthy world number one and of course uh, she suffered that injury at Roland Garros and I, I think that had everybody sort of downplay her chances at Wimbledon but she has been sort of moving along this tournament nicely she has a compelling matchup actually with the French Open champion uh Krychikova next mm. um Barty you know it, it's funny her her first grand slam coming at the french open and you feel like the grass courts might even be suited better to her game so uh, are you considering her a contender sabalenka as well we've seen it all like 10 wta titles and we we just haven't seen the breakthrough at a major for her yeah i think yeah they're obviously the the names that you kind of zone in on in terms of the favorites uh, yeah, I mean, Barty, I don't think she's necessarily played her best yet, but she's made it through and that that's all you need to do, isn't it? You know, don't play your best in the first week, play your best in the second week. Um, yeah, I'm, I mean, I hope that she's she's fully fit. There doesn't seem to be any indication that she's not and the, the players that she's beaten, you know, are, are, are decent players. So I think uh, you can't, can't really, she can't really have done any more, can she? But she hasn't maybe necessarily had a, a big test yet. So I think... I think maybe that might be why people are holding back a little bit, you know, wait to see, see when she played like Kritikova, you know, how does she fare against Kritikova, who I have to say, I think has done so well to get to the second week, you know, after having such an unexpected breakthrough in Paris to then get through to the second week of Wimbledon. That's a, that's a really tremendous effort on her debut, I think it is as well. So uh, no, that's brilliant. And Sabalenka, I mean, we've been waiting for Sabalenka, haven't we? She's got, she's got such a huge game um, and you feel like, she should be made for these stages, but I think that the sort of the longer it's gone on and she hasn't made the slam breakthrough, the more pressure she seems to have put on herself to do that. And, and with her game, she can, she can go for too much, can't she? And uh, that's definitely what we saw in Paris. She went for too much. She got beaten, you know, quite heavily in the third set. Um, so yeah, I, I'm pleased to see her through to the second week. She had a real battle against Britain's Katie Boulder, but she came through, and I think that was a really good sign that she she toughed out a match that she she might have lost there. I'm looking forward to her match against Rubikina. Rubikina's been excellent, I think. So that would be yeah, that's a that's a hard hitting contest, isn't it? So uh, you don't want the balls from that one. But um, <laughs> no, I uh, yeah, I I'm I'm impressed by Sabalenka, and I I, lo- I want to see her breakthrough because I think. You know, she's a she's a big player. She's a big personality. I think it would be good for the women's game if if she did have a big run at a slam. So I hope she can do that. And I think I don't know if you remember, but that match she played against Coco Goff at the U.S. Open when Coco Goff went on to to win it, and it was by far Coco Goff's hardest match of not Coco Goff. Who am I talking about? Naomi Osaka. There you go. I meant Naomi Osaka. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. When Naomi Osaka went to went on to win to win the US Open and the hardest match she had was against Sabalenka and it was sort of a bit of a sliding doors moment where you felt if it was Sabalenka who'd come through and won that match then actually maybe she would have been the one 
coming through and winning the US Open and, and she didn't and she hasn't really done anything better at a slam since. So, yeah, I hope that uh, I hope that we see her come through this week. Yeah, and, and you raise a good point for me that that second round win against Boulter because she was kind of battling um, not just Boulter, but the crowd as well on mm-hmm. center court, obviously uh, pulling for the British hopeful. So uh, for her to come through that, maybe she gains a bit of momentum. I do want to talk about one other British player, and mm-hmm. I will readily admit this is not a name that was <laughs> anywhere remotely in my brain, on my radar, never heard it in my life before this tournament. Emma Raducanu, uh, yeah. just eight, 18 years old. Um, career high ranking of number 333 going into this tournament. She was playing in just her second WTA event here coming into Wimbledon and somehow has made it into the second week. Also, interestingly enough, uh, she was actually born in Toronto, Ontario, but she does have the British nationality. Um, Was she on your radar at all as like a young sort of British junior hopeful? And and where did this run come from? (laughs) Yeah, you can't have her, I'm afraid. She, she's ours. So. I was just going to say, I didn't know she was born in Toronto, but I think yep. we should start talking about this. You guys got Rosetsky. I mean, it's got to come back to us at some point. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, she, she's, she, she definitely was on the radar. Yeah, she's been a name that people in British tennis have been talking about for quite a long time. Probably, you know, the best part of seven, eight years as our best kind of young female hope. And okay. I mean, the thing is, like, I guess it's probably the same in Canada that we don't really have big numbers. So the ones that stand out, stand out pretty quickly. Um, right. And yeah, as I say, she was a name that I heard, I don't know, five, six years ago, probably at, at least. Um, and then, yeah, she got to the junior quarterfinals at Wimbledon three years ago, and she got to US Open junior quarterfinals as well. So she got a bit more attention then, but obviously still very much under the radar. I think the thing with Emma is she just hasn't played many tournaments, as you said, Um, certainly not at tour level, but not really at ITF level either. And the ones that she's played, she's done extremely well in. So you could see sort of, I I think she won. So she entered her first like ITF junior event when she was 13 and she won it. So uh, she stood out. Yeah, from very young as, as somebody who's got not just the game, but the mental, the mentality and the sort of the mindset. I think you could see against Kirstea certainly that, you know, she's not afraid of the big moment. She, she loves the big moment. She can play her best. She loves the atmosphere. She likes a big stage. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's in, of course, it's a surprise. You don't expect somebody to come into their, their first Grand Slam and to to go through and, and reach the fourth round ranked 338. But if she had played more senior tournaments, then she would be ranked significantly higher than she is now. She didn't travel during the pandemic. She's been at, at school. Um, you know, she, she didn't do homeschooling or distance learning or anything. She's actually been going to school. So she sat her uh, final school exams in um, April. So that's partly why she hasn't been playing at all. She decided not, her and her parents decided not to travel during the pandemic. Uh, so, so yeah, it, it is a surprise. Of course it's a surprise. But at the same time, like within British tennis, I think people have been waiting for her to make that breakthrough. I feel like when we end the call here with you, Eleanor, we're going to have to get on the horn to Tennis Canada right away to get her some <laughs> wild cards to see if we can start wooing her back to her... Mm-hmm country of birth um, but thanks for that great assessment of that young British talent um, just before we wrap up um, as a British journalist 
How important was it for you to see Wimbledon return to the tennis landscape this year after being canceled in 2020? And, and how difficult was it to see this crucial, you know, unique um, portion of the tennis season disappear last year entirely, unfortunately, on grass? Yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's hugely important, you know, for, I think for, for lots of people in, in Britain, tennis is the, the grass court season and especially the two weeks of Wimbledon. Um, I mean, tennis, in some ways, it's a big sport in Britain, but in other ways, it, it's pretty niche. Um, and it really only burst into the wider consciousness during Wimbledon, you know, when suddenly everybody's talking about tennis and everybody's watching tennis. You know, I mean, Emma Raducanu, I think, was on was on the front page of a couple of the papers today. I mean, that's kind of how big Wimbledon is. And given that, um, obviously, the European Championship football is going on, that was... Uh, I didn't expect her to be on the front page. So you know, that's, that's kind of a measure, really, of, of what Wimbledon means. And, yeah, it was really different. It was so weird last year, kind of getting to the first week in July and there was no Wimbledon, there was no grass court season. And obviously just for the game in, in Britain, um, it's where most of the income comes from. You know, that's all our big events are in these four weeks of the year. So when that doesn't happen, that, that's a major blow. I mean, thankfully, Wimbledon had this pandemic insurance, which meant that the income that they got through that meant that the, the funding for the British game wasn't too badly affected, which, I mean, amazing, because <laughs> I don't think anyone else had that. So very well done, Wimbledon, for that. <laughs> um, but yeah, just in terms of sort of getting people on court, inspiring people to pick up a racket, yeah, it's, it's absolutely massive. And tennis has, has benefited actually from, from the pandemic in some ways because tennis courts are one of the first things to reopen and when people couldn't do indoor exercise, they could get on a tennis court. So actually the figures in terms of tennis participation went up last year, but obviously hopefully with Wimbledon being back this year, then that will lead to even more of an increase. Yeah, it, it, it's so fantastic uh, for us as well to see it back. And and we know the feeling of importance of uh, big events sort of in, in your country for tennis. Uh, we, we had that same feeling with Rogers Cup, which, of mm -hmm. course, is a renamed National Bank Open. We missed it last year and can't wait for its return as well uh, later this summer. That's sort of like our Olympics for tennis uh, for the year in Canada. So, so important. Uh, Eleanor, thanks so much uh, for joining us on Matchpoint Canada, giving us uh, some great perspective on, on the first week of tennis. Tennis, and uh, we uh, look forward to continuing following your coverage uh, through the second week as well. No problem. Thanks for having me. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada, also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis. He's Mike McIntyre. And, and Mike, we've done two of these already uh, giveaways with on running and, and we have one final pair of on running shoes it is a roger federer advantage shoe and um you know wimbledon the site of eight grand slam titles for roger federer what better time uh than to announce or offer a contest for the final giveaway for this advantage shoe yeah we've been holding on to this one because we knew that uh, this was the ideal time to do it so uh You've got a week to send in your entries, and to do that this time around, please send us a, a direct message on either our Twitter account or our Instagram account, so MatchPointCan on Twitter and uh, MatchPointCanada on Instagram, or you can email us if you don't have either of those. Our emails are in our uh, Twitter bio, um, and send us the keyword, and the keyword for this week, and it's very fitting given we're at Wimbledon, the keyword is strawberry. So 
send us that keyword uh, via a DM or email to enter into the contest and we will draw the name of the lucky winner on our next episode. We'll give you until Saturday, July 10th at midnight to get those entries in. And uh, it's a fantastic looking shoe. It's not his tennis shoe, but it's a fantastic casual shoe that you can certainly wear to and from the court. And uh, our thanks again to On Running for, for partnering with us uh, yet again. Yeah, yeah. All those On Running Federer shoes are so slick. Uh, I really, really like them. Um, you know, we, we touched on it a little bit slippery grass courts and I felt like that was a massive topic of discussion through the first few days of the tournament here at the Wimbledon Championships of course Serena Williams was probably the the largest victim of the grass and you know trying to stop and sort of change directions she went down and and that ultimately cost her her tournament um, having to retire from that first match uh, in her first round to uh, Sasnovich. We saw it with Adrian Manorino against Roger Federer going down with injury. And we saw multiple slips and falls on the grass. And, uh, you know, I, I know Mike, you were interested in it. So you, you gave uh, um, fired off a message to our shoe expert now for the podcast. I'm going to call him that because he's been on now twice. Uh, Zach Thomas, who had some quality Intel on, what shoes to wear on the grass court surface, maybe explanations for why we're seeing more slips and falls on, on this surface this past week. Yeah. As as I was watching all these tough falls on the grass courts through just the first few days of action, my mind immediately went to, Hey, I know the guy uh, or the person that can uh, fill us in on what is going on from a, from a shoe aspect, you know, technical aspect uh, as we've had Zach Thomas on before, actually, oddly enough to review the, uh, the Federer shoes that we were giving away from on running. So that's a nice yep. little tie in as well. There are things that fit together. And, and Zach was kind to take a few minutes to break it down. What's he seen from his point of view in terms of why it seems like there's more slips and what players can do also to try and limit that as the tournament continues. So uh, why don't we throw to that interview right now? And uh, here's my chat with Zach Thomas. As we approach the midway point at Wimbledon, I'm happy to welcome back to Matchpoint Canada, Zach Thomas. Uh, Zach is a podiatrist, a certified tennis pro, and as his Twitter bio says, he cuts tennis shoes open for fun. So in other words, he's exactly the person we need to talk to to figure out what the heck is happening with the grass courts at Wimbledon. Uh, Zach, thanks for joining me today. I'm happy to be back. I'm glad I didn't scare you off the first time. No, the first one went well, so uh, you're welcome back anytime, especially when it comes to what's going on with tennis shoes and specifically grass court tennis shoes. I mean, I've been watching Wimbledon since I was a kid. And of course, you're going to have people slipping on the surface. Uh, That's just, you know, par for the course. But this year, it seems that it's happening just, you know, so many more times than usual. And the falls are especially nasty. Case in point, Serena Williams, who was knocked out of the tournament with an injury. What have you noticed about what's going on from what you've seen over the past week or so? So, um, it has nothing to do with the grass. It has everything to do, nothing to do with the nubs on the shoes. It has everything to do with number one. Um, a lot of these players, some of these players have never played on grass before, especially the, the wild cards that have come in that, that, that some of them never played on grass. It's their first time. Number two, there was a much shorter uh, break from clay to grass. So you have all these people now that are just muscle memory trying to slide into their shots which you absolutely cannot do on grass. You can, uh, you can't wear nubs and do it though. That that's how you get into trouble. Like, like Serena. Um, it's, it's just a completely different, uh, muscle memory for grass. It's a totally different 
um, kind of feeling underfoot being on nubs versus on herringbone, uh, which is what you use for clay or an all court tread pattern. And I think a lot of people aren't used to it. And um, I, I heard on, I forget where, what channel was, I was watching the, the tournament on, but they were saying, no, the grass is a little slippery. Well, if it wasn't, the grass would die. I mean, I, I, when I, I went, I visited the All England Club, uh, it was January when I went, uh, when I was, my wife and I went on vacation there. And they have heaters, misters, everything. They keep that grass it, under such tight control in terms of humidity, uh, you know, how high it gets to grow. And so um, it, the best explanation I can give you as to why they're exactly sliding is, okay, so this is the match point Canada. So you'll understand this in terms of hockey, right? So an ice I love skate, the, I love the, you know, I haven't even heard it, but I love the analogy. Right. Already, right. Yeah. So everyone that's like really into ice hockey or ice skating, whatever knows that when the blade of your skate is going across the ice, it's not contacting the ice. It's melting the ice as it goes along and it's gliding on that little microscopic layer of water. And that's how you glide so well on ice. Ice in, gen ice in of itself is not all that slippery. It's that it melts right when the blade hits it and that's how you slide. That's how an ice skate moves, right? When you look at it, you know, on, on a lower level. It's the same thing on grass. There is an inherent dew on grass. You know, everyone's saying, oh, that the grass is slippery. No, it's just dew. I mean, grass has dew on it. And so when you have the, the first couple of days of the tournament where there's no dirt, right? You, I mean, you don't really yeah, see- They look so beautiful it. at the start of the tournament. Right, they look great. They're dangerous, I guess, too, right? They, they look great, right? But those blades of grass, when you step on them, they're not compressing, they're bending. So if you, like, if you took a camera and put it just on like 120 frames per second and just really a macro lens, you'd watch the nubs of the shoe press the grass down. They're not digging into the dirt. They're just pressing grass down. And so now you get the same effect. The nubs of the shoe on a blade of grass with that dew interface between them. And there you go. Now you're slipping and sliding. Now, once you progress into the tournament and there's actual dirt in there, now the nubs can interact with the dirt. Now, the other reason you're seeing this now, just in general, I mean, the last 2018 and 2019, there were a lot of falls too. Um, we're just hearing about it more now because there wasn't a Wimbledon last year. So it wasn't like, you know, we're kind of, everyone's kind of forgetting. Uh, fresh in our memory is what you're yeah, saying. It would have happened the last time the tournament was held. Is that, is that your take? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. And so when, when you're playing side to side, all court tennis on a grass court, it's really hard. I mean, nubs just aren't going to cut it. Honestly. I mean, you almost need spikes now back in the day when it was just serving and volleying, you were going up and down, right? So if you fell, like it really wasn't that big of a deal. You're just moving forward and it's kind of fall over and tumble. I mean, almost, and then like, if you're falling one side or another, it's almost like a Boris Becker type dive. You practice that. When back in like the early two thousands, when Roddick was starting to come, you know, into his own, the greatest of all time, I'll just plug that for him. <laughs> I should have said Zach is based in the United States. Yeah. So that explains that comment. Yeah. So, but, um, it was, it was serve one shot, right? And so that's, they were playing serve one shot now on grass. So you really weren't even slipping then either because it just come down from your serve and, and you were going to end the point from the baseline. Now you're playing a more Nadal, Djokovic team uh, type style of play or Federer type style of play. Now you're moving all across the court, hitting at different angles. These men and women are super tall, right? They're putting such violent force on their shoes you can't expect a blade of grass to be able to provide you enough friction to stop. 
So that's. So if the players just went back to the classic serve and, ball, and volley, we would see less of these slips and falls. I, yeah, I would think so. If nothing for the fact that if you watch the 1985 Wimbledon final versus the 2019 Wimbledon final, there would be one track of dirt going from the baseline to the net and then a tee. Everybody took the same path. When you're playing all court tennis, everyone's taking different paths. So you're always kind of hitting a different patch of grass, right? So like, if you're like Dominic team, right? You're going to, he plays in a certain part of the court. Nadal plays much further back. Djokovic is right on the baseline. Like he's just trying to eat your heart out from the baseline. Federer is kind of playing in like a couple, like four different pockets on the court. So when it versus like back in the eighties, let's say McEnroe plays a match and just goes straight down the tee, right? Then Becker comes out and plays a match straight on the tee. They're basically just like, you know, just creating like a, you know, like a little path for each other, almost like on the highway where one car is in front of you, creating a path in the snow. That's not happening anymore. So, I mean, honestly, I'm, I'll bet you Wimbledon starts to try to get more heart, like a, a, a thicker or maybe like just a, a more coarse grass at some point. The problem with that stuff is, I mean, if you ever tried to grow a lawn in your own house, it's hard to get a different type of grass to grow in an area that one wants to. And it's also harder to maintain that really thin razor thin grass, because if you, um, if you follow Wimbledon on Instagram or Twitter, the amount of work that goes into making that grass the way it is, is, is not, is nothing short of, I mean, like man getting to the moon too. I mean, yeah, that's, yeah. That's, how, that's how much goes into it. This is not something that just happens in the weeks leading up to the tournament. As you mentioned, when you went there in January, was it, you know, they were probably already right hard at work on, on you know, cultivating it. You can't get, first of all, you can't get near the grass. I mean, like if you get near the grass. I mean, like, you know, some like, like police officer. Show, I mean, it's, it's insane. They have a special device for every single court that goes up and down that provides sun, artificial sunlight, humidity, whatever. And it reacts to what the temperature is doing. I mean, that's how crazy this gets. I wonder, like you alluded to there, if we are going to see changes, you know, in future editions of the tournaments, because if you don't have your star players there because they're getting hurt, it's a bad look on the sport. You're not going to have the players you want deep in the tournament. I mean, already not having Serena Williams, who couldn't even make it out of round one, is terrible loss for the tournament. Not well, to mention and, for her and her fans, but I, I wonder what they can do because you know what, hardcore tournaments we've seen slow hard courts and fast hard courts and back to slow hard courts, clay court tournaments they can adjust as well the composition. How much wiggle room do we have with the grass court? Do you think? Well, so it's the All England Club, right? So remember the year that Andy Murray was playing in the semifinals and they wanted to stop his match because there was a noise ordinance at a certain amount of time at night, so they were to shut it down. There's so much tradition in that area that it's just, I mean, Wimbledon is just like this little hamlet. I mean, so it's like they have all these rules and traditions. If you, uh, the International Tennis Hall of Fame in Rhode Island, I'll, I, this, this does make sense. This comes back to it. The International okay, okay. Tennis Hall of Fame in Rhode Island has the most beautiful grass courts you've ever seen. My dad and I were on the phone with them for days trying to get, be able to play on that center court that they have, which is kind of in their casino. It's just picturesque. It's beautiful, right? Well, when we went there, we had herring because we play on clay. Like my, the club we play at has mostly clay. So we show up with our herringbone shoes on. They will not let you on the courts. And if you think they are crazy about what you can do, Wimbledon is on another level. If you could play in a herringbone, kind of like a, a clay specific herringbone 
with a little bit more of like a spiked tread. So maybe offset varying angles on that tread. You'd probably grip pretty well. The bad part is, is by the first night of Wimbledon, the grass would just be shredded. Maybe all chewed up. Yeah. Right. The yeah. nubs on the shoes, even though they are supposed to compress into that dirt and give you like a really good center of grass and they're really supposed to like hold you down really well. They don't chew up grass because it, it kind of goes in between the blades. That, that, that's the, the idea. Um, but I'll bet you, you put some of like the really crazy zigzag herringbone. You can see some like the NBA, like James Harden who plays with that in the NBA. Um, and if you let players use more like a harder rubber, um, I, I think there is a rule on the durometer, which is the hardness of rubber that you can use there. There's all sorts of rules on this because they want to maintain the, the grass for as long as possible. And, you know, Wimbledon grass is, is bioengineered. I mean, you know, they've done a lot to it. I honestly, I don't know if they're going to do anything about it. Yeah. Uh, so, so Zach, tell me this then. If you're a player in the tournament right now, and obviously it's it's too late in the game to change up your shoe and whatnot, right. what kind of adjustments, you know, if you were coaching a player, would you say, hey, why don't you try doing a couple of things here that, you know, maybe your movements or the way that you're navigating around the court to keep yourself, you know, safe out there? So the first thing that if I were a coach, I would be saying, you need to pay attention to the last couple steps before a shot. So when everyone's, you know, for tennis footwork, it's split step, go to the ball. And then all the time, like when I was in college, my college tennis coach was always telling me, you have to take three more steps. Like you're lunging, you're lunging, you're lunging, you're lunging, you're lunging. That's why you're mishitting balls. I think just players need to be taking a lot more shuffle steps before they're hitting. Also, if you're hitting more of an open stance, you're a little bit better balanced. Um, and, and also sometimes you just have to let some balls go. I, I think, I think because there's not that third week in between the clay and the grass season, you're seeing a lot of people think like, Oh, I can just stretch for this thing, you know, and go get it. If you saw like Andy Murray did that a few times, he went, um, he went back to the baseline and try to retrieve a few, uh, uh, lobs just like, I mean, on clay, you could just slide going back, even on a hard court, I've slid going back for those. I mean, I'm an overweight 34 year old man, you know what I mean? And I, and I can even do that on a hard court on grass though, your knee's going to lock up. So it, it's kind of one of those things where you just have to like, you know, I'd have note cards on me on the bench that's saying like, don't slide, don't slide, don't slide. The, the funny thing is though, is, you know, I've played on grass a, a, a bunch of times I've slid on grass pretty successfully in a herringbone shoot, you know, just knowing, you know, you kind of get to get to know the surface. Um, and if you if you see later in the tournaments, you'll start to see people start to slide on, on the grass. Um, the, the hard part is, is re-engaging the grass because once you start sliding on it, it's like, you just keep going. Whereas on clay, you'll clump up enough of it in your tread that it'll still stop. And then you'll get to go the other direction. Whereas on clay, you'll just start to keep going and going and going and going. So once the, you get more dirt underneath of you, you're basically just playing on a clumpy clay court, you know, so that then you'll start to see people start to stop. Zach, I knew we could count on you uh, to break this down for us. And for those of you who want to hear more from Zach on what he does, you can check him out on YouTube. Uh, he's Foot Doctor Zach, and on Twitter at Tennis Pro Doc. Uh, Zach, you're welcome back anytime. Thanks for uh, taking us uh, through what's happening on the grass at Wimbledon today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
There you have it, Mike's conversation with Zach Thomas. And uh, yeah, I should say ahead of time, it wasn't just Adrian Manorino and Serena Williams who were victim to this. I think Bianca Andrescu fell about six times in that first round loss to Elise Cornet. We saw Andy Murray go down multiple times, Djokovic going down. It's happening uh, to all athletes. And the grass surface does change as the tournament goes on. Obviously, there was a lot of exposure to rain the first couple of days, but this is a major injury risk that uh, athletes are putting themselves through each time they play this event. Yeah, and aside from the moisture content in the grass, the fact that it looked a little bit uh, more wet than usual, Zach had some pretty good insight that you know it was a good reminder to think, hey, there was less time in between the clay court season and the grass court season this year. Yep. To get acclimatized to the surface and as well what he pointed out and this is so true is back in the day in the 80s and 90s when there was more serve and volleying going on the game was more north south which tended to lead to to less slips on the on the surface now it's almost like players are playing it as if it was clay or hardcore and going more east west and that's another contributing factor to why you're seeing these falls so our thanks again to zach for joining us um and and some interesting ideas for what can be done throughout the rest of the tournament for players. Uh, in fact, he said, Hey, if I have to put on my coach's hat, here's what I would tell my players in terms of, you know, staying safe out there. And, and as the tournament progresses and we see more of that sort of dirt at the back of the court, um, hopefully that too will sort of lend itself towards a safer surface to finish things off here. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully certainly don't want to see anybody, anybody else go down with a, an injury. We will finish with some Canadian tennis news. We already talked about our Canadians, Dennis Shapovalov and Felix Ocialiasim making the round of 16. One of those two will be in Tokyo and uh, you know, we'll have several Canadians heading to the Tokyo Olympics. Um, tennis Canada did reveal the Olympic roster. And on the men's side, we have Felix Ocialiasim, Vashik Pospisil attending. And then on the women's side, we have multiple names, Bianca Andrescu, Leila Fernandez set to compete in singles. And then Gabriela Dabrowski and Sharon Fishman um, set to compete in doubles. And even with the missing pieces, you know, Milos Raonic dealing with an injury, Denis Shapovalov did opt out this time. This is still a stacked field for Canada. And um, I, I think on, on both sides, men's and women's, there are going to be opportunities to medal. Yeah, this is by far the deepest tennis team we've ever sent to the Olympics, I would say, without any hesitation. And on the men's side, despite the fact there's only two of them there, uh, Felix is certainly a threat in singles. Vashik has shown he's capable of performing and, and causing upsets at the biggest stages. So why not at the Olympics? And then they're such good buddies. So for them to team up in doubles, you know, and have that comfort level between them, I think that could lend us some success as well. Vashik's been there already uh, a few times before. So um, he can sort of also prep Felix for what to expect. Um, I mean, Vashik learned from the best in Daniel Nestor. And mm -hmm. when I spoke to Vashik after his unfortunate uh, loss in, in singles at Wimbledon, I said, hey, are you going to try and sort of match Nestor's record for Olympics? And I was saying it jokingly, Vashik guessed, how many was that? Five. It was actually six times that Nestor wow. went to the Olympics. So Vashik's halfway there. Um, and then on the women's side, hey, a healthy Bianca Andreescu is capable of anything. I think uh, this will be a great learning experience for Leila Annie Fernandez. Although in her mind, no doubt she's going to be going, uh, thinking she's going to be and hoping to, of course, contend for a medal because that's the way she's wired. And in doubles, they haven't played together much in, in recent years, Gabby Dabrowski and Sharon Fishman, but the two of them have had so much individual success with other partners. Why couldn't it work out putting them back together? 
Yeah, yeah, I agree. And uh, we should know Sharon Fishman is still in the doubles field and Wimbledon with uh, Juliana Almos of Mexico as the ninth seed. I believe they got a walkover in their second round, so they should be very, very fresh and and ready to compete. Uh, Two fantastic teams on both the men's and women's side, and that is still with the missing pieces. And we still have a few Canadians in the Wimbledon draw as well. Uh, Thanks so much. Uh, for listening to Matchpoint Canada. And thank you to our guests, Eleanor Crooks and Zach Thomas. We will talk to you next time. Boys and girls